Please open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed on and triumph as it did among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things which we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Perhaps most of you remember from last week in Ephesians 6, where Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying. As though prayer is the way you take the sword of the Spirit. The prayer is the, is the power that takes the weapon of the word and wields it. But you remember that we said the sword is not a a dead, lifeless thing, but when the arm of prayer picks it up, a bolt of electricity, spiritual power, goes from the word into prayer so that the, the power and the arm of prayer that wields the word in spiritual battle is, is a power that comes from the sword. And the focus last week was on how the sword affects the arm or how the word helps the praying power that wields it. It's as though the brain of the nerves in this arm of prayer is not in the head, it's in the sword. So that the brain of the word of God is sending impulses to the nerves that governs the muscles of prayer that returns then and wields the sword in the most effective way in spiritual battle. The magnificence of prayer is that God has put his word in the hand or in the arm of prayer. It is just an astonishing thing when you think about it. But before we get to the text and think about it from the text, I want to try to put my finger uh, on a universal starting point in your hearts. I believe it's universal. I think somewhere within your heart, everybody that's here, even if you're an unbeliever and not a Christian, Somewhere within every heart, I think there's a desire to be an instrument of God's power. And therefore, even if you don't feel it, there is buried perhaps in your subconscious a longing to be a man or a woman of fervent and powerful prayer. Now, let me try to show you why I think that is there in every one of your hearts. Even if you say, well, that's... I just want to watch the Super Bowl next week. I don't care about praying. It's there, and I want to try to show you why I'm convinced of that. 
Everybody in this room has been created by God in God's image. And I think what that means is that you are created to be mirrors of his glory. I think that's what it means to be in the image of God. A conscious devotion to being a mirror, a reflector of the glory of God. I think that before Adam and Eve fell, their overwhelming longing was to image forth like a mirror the love, the power, the wisdom of their Father in heaven. And that longing, I think, is deep down still there in every person today. But it's been distorted by sin. And the distortion, in a sense, is only slight, and yet it's the difference between day and night. The distortion is the difference between wanting to reflect God and wanting to be God. Wanting to keep focused on his face and wanting to take his place. That's the difference between pre-fallen and post-fallen humanity. The glory of a mirror is to stay facing the light or the face that should be reflected in the mirror. And mirrors are made for that. But when sin entered the world, the first manifestation of sin was to make Adam and Eve discontent with being mere mirrors. They started to... They started to want to be the source of their own light. They didn't like the idea anymore that they were just a piece of glass with a a thin black coating of tin and mercury on the back. They didn't like it that everywhere the light went, they had to keep facing the light wherever he went. And they just had to follow him. And they decided they were going to be their own light and not face the light anymore. And ever since, they have simply been blocking the light and casting shadows on the earth. But what I want you to see is that this new desire that you're born with and I'm born with, that we get from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, this desire to be God is just a distortion of something good. And it's, it's sometimes very close to something Good. We come into the world wanting the world to revolve around us, don't we? It doesn't take very long for that to emerge in a human heart. And that's what it means to be God. I want the world to revolve around me. We want to decide for ourselves which way to turn our faces, not just toward the light. We want people to esteem us, to admire us, to compliment us. We don't like the thought of being a mere mirror. We don't like the idea of having to be dependent on a source of light from outside ourselves. We want to be God. Now, you rarely say that to yourself. What I really want is to be God. But if you are consistent in your analysis of your own attitudes, that's what they mean. Unless Christ has regenerated you and given you the ability to face back to the Father and rely on Him. If you're honest, you'll admit that every one of you and me feel that by our natural human essence. We want to be God. But it's a distortion of something wonderful. 
And the wonderful thing is that we want to be reflectors of God. When I walk to church on Sunday morning at about 725 and cross 8th Street, about this time of year, it, it, it's going to take a few more days because the sun is coming up now, almost on time. But there are times when I walk across the street and I have on my east a sun and on my west a sun. You know what that sun is down there? It's the IDS Tower. And you can't look at the IDS Tower February 1st at 7.30 a.m. if you stand on 8th Street and look west. That's what it means to be in the image of God. That's what has been distorted. And, and Christ came into the world to call us back to that destiny, to face the Son, God, full face, and become a good mirror a glorious mirror, a blinding mirror. Concealed deep beneath the pride that wants to be God is a distorted desire to want to reflect God, which is good. It is not evil. I don't think it's wrong to want to be significant. It's wrong to want your significance to be in yourself instead of the one that you reflect. I don't think it's wrong to want to be important in the world. It's wrong to want your importance to lie in yourself instead of the one that you reflect. I don't think it's wrong to boast. But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God forbid that I should boast in anything save the cross by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, says the Apostle. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to be significant or important or even boasting if we were mirrors instead of, you know, the glory of a mirror is to face the sun and shine. The most ludicrous thing in the world is for a little created compact mirror to decide to turn around, Boom. turn its back to God, and then in the long, dark shadow that it creates, start trying to make sparks to create light on the world. It's ludicrous. And that's the way we live. When we don't humble ourselves and say, I'm just a mirror, a little piece of glass, God's painted a coating on my back, He's designed me to... We don't like it because it's all God. He gets all the glory for the mirror-like people. But those who have tasted the power of the age to come and have been anointed by the Holy Spirit and born again, they love it. They love being IDS towers, even if they are nothing without the glory of God shining in their face. Well, now, you've probably lost complete track of what this has to do with prayer. So what I'm going to do is go back and show you what I'm trying to do. Because it's all intended to get you to a certain point with regard to prayer. What I've been trying to show you is that every one of you, whether consciously or unconsciously, wants to be a person mighty in prayer. I think you want to have a significant role in accomplishing the divine purposes of God. 
My argument goes like this. There is a universal desire to be God in fallen human beings, but it's a distortion of something good. Beneath that rebellion, there is a potential of mighty righteousness and purity and goodness. And what that potential is, is a longing to be a mirror, to shine in the world with the glory of God. And my tacit assumption that I now make explicit is this. You shine when you pray. Or praying is mirroring the glory of God. A mirror faces away from itself in order that it might absorb the light and do good for people. Prayer faces away from itself in order that it might absorb grace and do good for people. A mirror is designed to receive and give. And prayer is designed to receive and give. The value of a mirror is not in itself. It's in the image that comes to it to be reflected from it. And the value of prayer is not in itself. It's in the grace and the value that it draws into itself to give out in intercession for others or back to God in praise. A mirror is utterly dependent on its source of light. You flick off the light in a room with a mirror is useless. Prayer is utterly useless without God. And prayer is the posture of a child depending for everything on his father. So prayer is the mirroring capacity of man. So praying is the way we mirror God. Now, if I'm right, then in every one of you is the image of God. There is a deep longing also to display God's glory by mirroring it. Then there's a longing to pray. That's my argument. You may not feel it, but consider that if you're created in the image of God, deep down, there is yet the remnant of that longing to want to mirror him forth. And if praying is the way you mirror him forth, then you have it creeps up into your consciousness every now and then this deep primal desire to be a man or a woman of great prayer. What I want to happen through this sermon this morning, through the rest of this day, is the quickening of that desire. And I want it to become insatiable through 1985. And to do that, I just point you to this little verse. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Because what I saw in this verse this week has caused me to love prayer more, to want to pray more, and to resolve to pray more in 1985. We'll read it together. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed on in triumph. Now, literally, it says that the word of the Lord may run and be glorified as it did among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. Now, let's just meditate on verse one for a minute, because this this is a magnificent vision of prayer here, if you'd ponder it for a few minutes. I would sum up the doctrine of this verse like this. Through prayer, the word of the Lord overcomes obstacles and reaches glorious victory. Through prayer, the word of the Lord overcomes obstacles and reaches glorious victory. There's an image here. Prayer or the word of God, is, a, is an athlete, and he's in a race, and he's running. 
And what he's running for is glory. He sees the, the wreath. He sees the gold around his neck in the Olympics. And he wants to beat all other competitors. And you know who they are. All the other words in the world. All the other philosophies. All the other theories. All the other worldviews. We're in a race. The gospel of God is in a race with those things. And he says, pray that it will win. That just blows my mind away that God would tell me to do that. Because I know it's going to win. He is God. When God speaks, worlds came into being. I mean, God's word is going to win. It will have the gold. There's no doubt about that. Is there? God said, Piper, pray that my word will get the glory, will run, will be victorious. And I simply lay down my hands and say, you mean that you are going to make the consummation of the word of God in the age to come dependent on my prayers? And he says, of course, that's what it says. Nothing in God's purposes in the end is going to happen without the word being victorious, is it? Jesus said, the gospel of this kingdom must first be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. Revelation pictures the end with people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Unless the word of the Lord runs and is victorious in every tongue and tribe and people, the new heavens and the new earth are going to abort. Do you see what it means to be a person of prayer? Do you see the majesty of prayer? Do you see the privilege of being given the dignity of causality, as Pascal called it, in prayer? It's amazing to me that in the end, God is going to use your prayer and my prayer to accomplish ultimate purposes. And if you're hungry for significance, if you're the kind of person who wants to be important, that is, to have a significant role in something worthwhile, is not verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 3 a magnificent challenge? In about two seconds, we're all going to be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Everybody in this room. And the reason I say two seconds is because James said, your life is like a vapor. It appears on the wind and in two seconds it's gone. If you walked into church this morning and were breathing, you probably saw your breath. How long did you see it? Two, three seconds? That means you got about two seconds to make your mark on this world and then begins eternity. Now, greatness in this two-second life of ours is usually defined, and not wrongly, I think, as accomplishing something great. Being involved in a great cause or a great purpose and having some significant influence on something great. So people make it their aim to write a great novel or to start a business that might rival IBM or Mobile Oil or to uh, be the coach of a winning Super Bowl team. Or to 
uh, be a military commander and win a victory in a war. Or perhaps if you're a scientist to invent some new form of energy. People are always questing for greatness. Well, here we are, two seconds later, and before the judgment seat of God. The novel is gone. IBM is gone. The Super Bowl is gone. And the new form of energy is like a first-grade science project in heaven. So you feel silly boasting about it. <laughs> They're all gone. And over here to the right stands John Doe Christian, who in 1985 was so gripped and moved by the Spirit of God during prayer week that he said, For the rest of my life, O oh God, if you give me strength, I will pray a half an hour a day that your word run and be glorified all around this globe. And behind him, as far as you can see, are thousands of saints because he prayed. Now, who's great? I mean, would, would anybody take God up on it if God said, Okay, I'll give you two seconds to feel what it's like to be uh, the greatest novelist in the world. Then psh, that's all. Now eternity to live out the consequences of your life. Who would take him up on it? And yet the whole world has taken him up on it. The whole world lives for two-second glory, two-second significance, two-second importance, two-second boasts, and eternity stretches out, and they're going to get there, and it's all going to be hay. And the simple people, many of them, who have invested their lives in the blue-chip, high-yield stocks of eternity in prayer, are going to have mountains of treasures. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, the Lord said. Not on earth, where moth corrupts and thieves break in and steal. It's so plain, so reasonable that prayer, which moves God to cause his word to run and be glorified, is the way to have the most significant, the most important, the most boastworthy role in history. So my challenge as we close this morning is that you would make a resolution with me. I, I'm going to tell you something very specific I want you to do. I'm going to give you a chance to raise your hand in prayer in a minute that you will promise with me to do it. It's this. I would like to challenge you to pray an eight-second prayer every day this year that I'm going to tell you. And all it is is a paraphrase of 2 Thessalonians 3.1. And I would word it like this. Lord, cause your word to run and be glorified in the ministries of our church and in the missions we support. In Jesus' name, amen. Eight seconds or so. Would you be willing to do whatever you need to do by way of practical reminders and resolving to pray that prayer every day in 1985? Let me tell you what it implies. It implies praying that the word would run and be glorified in converts being one to Christ. There are unbelievers who come to this church every Sunday. Let's pray that they, they're brought into the kingdom, that we fold them into the new 
discipleship class, that they grow up into strong oaks of righteousness. It means praying that the word would run and be glorified in conquering bad habits. Every one of us struggles with bad habits, whether it's our tongue or personality or a drug or lack of sleep or uh, fooling around in ways you shouldn't. We've got habits that need power to be broken. It means praying that the word would run and be glorified in that many of our younger and older people would be called forth and sent out as ministers of the word on the home front and on the frontiers. And it means praying that the ministers of the word would be kept from the evil one, would not be led astray into error, would be kept from all manner of immorality, would keep their focus on the word of God, would be anointed by the Holy Spirit, and would preach the word faithfully and teach it in Sunday school classes. That's what it means. I'm not asking you to pray all that because then you'd have a harder time. I'm asking for eight seconds a day. And here's the way I'm going to help you do it. In the star this week, there'll be a little box. And in the box will be this prayer. And you cut it out and you tape it on your headboard or your lamp or your bathroom mirror or your dashboard or your your refrigerator. Whatever you see every day, put it there and pray it in eight seconds. Now, before I ask you to pray about that and raise your hands, I want to tell you a little story that I got from David Howard about perseverance in prayer, because that's the big threat, right? We all want to do that. I mean, that's easy to do for this week. But persevering to the end of this year is not as easy. But let me give you another illustration before I give this. Noel and I, you remember March 9th of last year, promised the, the Missions and the Mance people, 90 of them, that if anybody came to Missions and the Mance, we'd pray for them by name every day. We missed one day. We went to the Frank Tillepar retreat without our list. But you know what we did? We prayed that the Lord would bring them to our memory. And we started listing them from memory because we'd prayed for them for three months. And I figure we, we got at least 80% of you. So we didn't miss a day, really. It can be done. And you know how we did it? It's taped on the headboard. And then when we went on vacation, it went into the suitcase and so on. And every night we were on our knees for those 90 people. Missions in the Manse is Friday a week again. Isn't that right, Tom? And we'll make that same commitment this year. I haven't talked to her about that yet. but I'll make that commitment anyway and talk to Noel this year. So anybody who comes to Missions in the Manse will go onto a list that Noel and I will pray for every day. It can be done. Now, here's a great illustration. In 1946, David Howard, who is the father of, of one of our professors, over at the uh, seminary and who is the general director for the World Evangelical Fellowship was at Wheaton College and a classmate of Jim Elliott who was killed by the Alcas, you remember, back in the 50s. God moved on Wheaton's campus in those days, largely through Jim Elliott, in a movement of prayer. Jim Elliott formed the students into a 24-hour prayer cycle like we did this week, so the students were praying round the clock through that year, that God would move and send out students to the frontiers. One of those students was Art Weens. Art Weens resolved in those student days to pray for all the students at Wheaton College by name, 10 a day, working through his roster, that God would move them and call them. Then they, they parted. David Howard didn't see Art Weens for 25 years. 1974, they met in 
uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, at the World Congress on Evangelization. And they renewed their friendship, and as they reminisced, they said, remember those great times of prayer we used to have back at Wheaton? And Art Weens said to David Howard, David, you know, I'm still praying for over 500 of our college contemporaries who are now on the mission field. And David said, how do you know they were on the mission field? He said, I keep in touch with the alumni office, and whenever one goes out, I add him to the list. David was so stunned that he said, could I see your your uh, your list? And the next day he brought him this old black tattered notebook of 25 years of upholding his classmates in prayer. Have you ever tasted the desire to put your hand to a plow and not take it off for 25 years? I taste that about being the pastor of this church all the time. Many of you have done that. The gray heads out there, most of you, are that kind of people. But we younger people are made of a different wishy-washy stuff. The younger generation are so victimized by their emotions. So victimized. Well, if I'm down, I won't do it. Now I feel like it, I'll go. You can't make very good resolutions. But I'm praying that God changes this generation, at least those at Bethlehem and through us others, changes me. I'm a very emotional, up-and-down person, but I want so much to put my hand to a plow and not take it off when I hit a rock in the furrow. Yeah, off to another furrow. I want to be one with stick to Things are accomplished when human beings put their hand to plows and don't turn back when the going gets rough. So I call you not to a very big plow. Eight seconds a day. It's light. It's easy. And one year is not 25 years. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me now. Let's bow our heads. And you just ask the Lord. It could be that you are so filled with resolutions and prayer plans that this is not yours for this year. And I'll respect that. But I would like all of you to consider the possibility that eight seconds a day should be devoted to this prayer. Lord, cause your word to run and be glorified in the ministries of Bethlehem and through the missions that we support in Jesus' name. Now I'd ask you to stand as we pray together and then have the benediction. Would you stand? Almighty God, we know that if anything is accomplished in the world of eternal value, it is by the word of God and prayer. And therefore, it is so wonderful that you have put it in our hearts to begin this year with prayer. And I promise as the pastor and we as a staff covenant together to make it a year of the word of God and not to take our hearts off of the scriptures, but to simply feed the sheep with the pure, unadulterated word of God. And would you then grant these resolutions to be fulfilled, that our people be praying daily, that this word run and be glorified both here in the ministries out from us and on the frontiers through the missions that we support. And now may the Lord, our God, the Almighty, cause his word to run and be glorified in our hearts, in our homes, in our ministries, 
and around the world as he fills the world with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And all God's people said, Amen.